Now I wonder, don't answer this out loud, but just think with me for a minute. How, How do you define religion? As you hear that word religion, what comes to mind? Maybe, maybe some definitions start turning for you. Webster's Dictionary defines religion pretty broadly and generally, a system of religious beliefs and practices. Right? That's a nice, just simple definition. Some definitions are a little more hostile. Take Sigmund Freud, for example. And every, by the way, every time I read this guy, I'm like, he just, he just needs a hug. But anyways... Sigmund Freud says, religion is an infantile dependency, a neurosis. Translation, it's essentially a mental illness in his mind. Maybe you think of Karl Marx, religion is the opiate of the masses. Or maybe you think of this common phrase, which I really don't know what it means. I'm not religious, but I am spiritual. It's pretty common, right? Meaning I, I don't, I think that means I don't believe in God Or I do believe in God, but I like to sleep in on Sundays or something like that, right? Or maybe you get a picture in your mind of a a religious person. And generally, if you ask our culture, it's not a good thing. I think of Ned Flanders, right? The fictional neighbor of Homer Simpson, Oakley Doakley, kind of uptight religious guy. Or more accurately, maybe you think of the Pharisees when you think of religion. Those who are in opposition to Jesus who had this sort of outward behavior, but we're actually opposed to the gospel. Now, when we come to the Bible, see, there's all sorts of different understandings of religion we may have. When we come to the Bible, we find, no surprise, God has a lot to say about religion. In one sense, that's what the, the Bible is, right? It's God telling us, here's what it truly means to follow the one true God. Here's what religion is. But there's one particular verse that we wanna consider this morning that really summarizes this for us. And I think it might be surprising as we think about it. And that's James 1.27. And James says this, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So in the church, if you've been around the church for a while, when somebody asks you, how is your religious life going? How's your, your walk with Christ? We generally respond by talking about how much we pray, right? How much we, we read the Bible or how we're doing at, at church attendance, those kinds of things. That's sort of the test we have in mind. In the world, when we talk about religion, it seems like, as we're talking about maybe with our friends who are, are not as religious, it seems like we're just trying to constantly convince people that we're not Ned Flanders, or, or that we don't have a mental illness, despite what Freud says. Right? And all of those conversations, inside and outside the church, are, are important. They, ha- they have a place. But isn't it interesting that according to James, the, the test of true religion that he gives is this. How is your care for orphans and widows? How are you doing at caring for the vulnerable? Now, why does James mention this particular group of vulnerable people? It's a good question. Well, this morning, as we're continuing this series in Justice for All, and we're looking at justice and the vulnerable, in particular, orphans and widows, and as we'll see in a moment, the connection to modern-day slavery and trafficking— And as we take this survey of the Bible on this topic, we're going to see that James is not just just sort of cherry-picking a random group of vulnerable people. 
he's actually drawing on this thread that winds all throughout the Bible. And that thread is namely this. We can sum it up by saying this. God is the father to the fatherless. And true Christian living involves, and this is not optional, it involves care and concern for the vulnerable around us. James is, is, is building on a theme all throughout scripture here. And so as we consider this this morning, we're gonna do it in three parts. First, we're gonna see God's care for orphans and widows throughout the Bible. Second, we're gonna see God's care for the enslaved. We're gonna see how those two connect. And then thirdly, we're gonna look at our call to action and consider some practical next steps. And by the way, I understand each of these sermons has been like, it's, it's like being waterboarded with the Bible, right? I, I understand that, drinking through a fire hose. And, and today's gonna be no different, but we're, we're doing this differently instead of just camping out in, in one text because we wanna see how primary these things are, not just in one verse here and there, but in the whole of scripture. So let's begin by considering this together. First, God's care for orphans and widows. Now, before we even jump into the scripture, let's first consider why being an orphan and being a widow is such a vulnerable position to be in. Now, the Bible almost always puts those two together. They're very rarely separated, as we'll see. And in the simplest definition, in our sort of cultural definition, a widow is a woman whose husband has died, right? An orphan is a child whose parents, generally, depending on how you define it, both parents have, have died. But the Bible actually widens our understanding of what this means, so in the Old Testament, for example, the Hebrew word for, for widow conveys the idea, it's this word picture of a palace or a home that is now desolate. It once was thriving and flourishing, but now it's completely empty. When we look in the New Testament, the Greek word simply means, for widow, simply means bereft, deprived or lacking. Now, Karen Ellis talks about this and she says, a widow in the biblical context is a woman bereft of the full provision and flourishing that could be provided by a husband or a family. This is so important. It's her condition that scripturally qualifies her as a widow, not the circumstances that led her to that condition. The circumstances that had left her being bereft in a male-dominated world may have been divorce, abandonment, Death, imprisonment, being forgotten, becoming physically or mentally disabled, being rejected by her family because of her faith, having been single and never married, the circumstances could have been many. See, that widens our understanding. And the same is true with orphans. It's not just that a father or mother or both parents have died but abandonment, neglect, abuse, children of, of single mothers, and, and more. See, Scripture wants us to feel the reality that the orphan and the widow is someone who is without provision, without care, and in need of intervention, whoever that may be. These things have been taken away from them for whatever reason, maybe by death, which is the most common understanding, but maybe something else. And that leaves them in this vulnerable position. 
Now, when we consider some of the common problems of, of orphans and widows given in the Bible, we, we really get a, a bleak picture. Let's look at a few passages here. Job was a man, we're told, who cared for the orphan and the widow. He tells us that they were, for example, they were at risk of being kidnapped and sold. Job 24, 9 says, There are those who snatch the fatherless child from the breast, and they take a pledge against the poor. We're told that orphans and widows were, were at risk of hunger and abandonment. Job, again, Job 31, 16 through 18. Now he's talking about his care of orphans and widows in this situation. He says, if I've withheld anything that the poor desired or have caused the eyes of the widow to fail or have eaten my morsel alone and the fatherless has not eaten of it. Verse 18, for from my youth, the fatherless grew up with me as a father and from my mother's womb, I guided the widow. We see that they're prone to being taken advantage of and losing possessions, including rights to land. This is why Proverbs 23, 10 says, do not move an ancient landmark or enter the fields of the fatherless. Because they were prone to having these things taken away from them. They're prone to losing their livelihood. Job again tells us of the wicked, Job 24, 3, they drive away the donkey and the of the fatherless, and they take the widow's ox for a pledge. They were victims of violence and even murder. Psalm 94, 6 and 7. They, the wicked, kill the widow and the sojourner and murder the fatherless. And they say, the Lord does not see. The God of Jacob does not perceive. This was true in the, in the Old Testament. It's true in the New Testament. It's true today as well. There are millions of orphans and widows but you, isn't it interesting that you rarely hear of this as a, as a crisis? It just seems like it's just sort of understood. When was, the, when was the last time, unlike some of these other things we've been talking about, you've turned on the news and heard about an orphan crisis or a widow crisis? It seems like there's, there's more important things in our mind. But the vulnerable are still around us and they still need advocates and families and support just as they did when the scriptures were written. And so how does God respond to this bleak circumstance of orphans and widows? He responds as he always does, with the brightness of his compassion and mercy. There's so many, I was amazed, I knew this was a theme in the scripture, but I was amazed at just how many scriptures there were to tell us about God's heart for the orphan and widow. I tried to whittle them down into seven different facets of God's heart. So, so listen to these seven passages. First, we know, we, we read that God hears their cry. Exodus 22, you shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless trial, uh, child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry. Don't miss verse 24. I almost didn't read this. It's not very culturally acceptable, but listen. And my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. God's wrath burns against that which threatens what he loves and cares for, right? Right? So God hears their cry. He provides for them. Deuteronomy 10, 18. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. He's called the father of the fatherless. That's what we read during our reading, Psalm 68, 5. Father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. He'll judge the oppressors. Psalm 10, 17 through 18. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. 
He sustains them. Psalm 146, nine. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. He welcomes them. Psalm 27, 10. For my father and mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. And probably my favorite, he shows mercy. Hosea 14, 3. In you, the orphan finds mercy. Now, isn't that enough? If we just think of, of that, isn't that enough to cause our hearts to stir for the cause of the orphan and the widow? And really ask ourselves, are we like God in this? Do we hear the cry of the orphan and the widow? Or are they easily kept out of our affluent and comfortable minds? But there's even more as we go through the Bible and get to the New Testament especially to stir us. When we get to the New Testament, we see this idea of God as a father develop more fully. Now, consider Christ himself. We see that he showed care for the orphan and widow. In Luke 7, for example, he, he sees a woman, a widow whose son has just died. And we're told that when he sees her, he has compassion on her. Now, if you're reading Gentle and Lowly, we talked about this last week, that word compassion means a deep feeling in your gut. The word is splagnizomai. There's your Greek lesson for the day. He's moved to his core with compassion toward her and he speaks to her dead son and says, young man, I say to you, arise, raises him to life. The people see this as an act of God and they say, God has visited his people. Remember James 1.27? What is true and pure religion? To visit orphans and widows, which means to care for. They're saying, God the father of the fatherless, the one who cares for orphans and widows has visited us in Jesus. Or consider John 19. I've read this passage hundreds of times in my Christian life and never realized this this week. The account of Jesus on the cross. What was his final act? John 19 verse 26 says, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. By this point, Joseph, Jesus' earthly father, Mary's husband, had surely died. She was a widow. And so Jesus compassionately cares for his widowed mother in his dying breath. And make sure John, his closest friend, who a few chapters earlier, he said, I will not leave you as orphans. Make sure that he cares for her. His, his dying breath act was to care for a widow. Now, more than just these accounts of Jesus and, and then the church, we could keep going. But consider this. In the New Testament, we get this doctrine of adoption. Now, the New Testament as a bunch of glorious pictures for what it means to be saved, what it means to be redeemed. Take, for example, redemption. That's a word picture. It's a monetary picture, a marketplace picture, buying something back. Or we, we read of justification. That's a legal courtroom picture. We are, we are declared righteous because of Christ's righteousness. God the judge declares us righteous. We get propitiation. That's a big word to say that, that the sacrifice for our sins. That's an Old Testament worship picture. 
We get reconciliation, which is a in the home picture. Two people are at odds that are reconciled in the family. All of those beautiful pictures that tell us of the gospel. Then there is the picture of adoption. And I agree with J.I. Packer when he says that adoption is the highest privilege that the gospel offers, even higher than justification. To be right with God, the judge, is a great thing, but to be loved and cared for by God, the Father, is greater. So what is this doctrine of adoption? Well, it's simply this. When God saves us, he makes us members of his family. Galatians 4, which we read in our reading. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of this world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So here's what Paul's doing here. He's telling the Christian his or her spiritual adoption story. He's saying, you were at one time bereft. You were like that palace that had nothing in it. It was desolate. You were without provision. You were spiritually empty. You were aimless and uncared for in your sin. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent Jesus and he he stepped into the orphanage of our broken world, if you will. And he redeemed us so that we might receive adoption as sons. Now, if you're reading that and you say, why does he say sons and not children or, or sons and daughters? I think that's a great question. But here's what he's doing here. He's drawing on this Roman practice of adoption, of someone taking in a, a male son, adopting them so that they would be heirs of what they owned when they die. It's not primarily about son or daughter. It's not about gender here. So what he's not saying is, if you're a woman and you follow Jesus, you're actually not adopted. It's only for the sons. No, what he's saying here is that you who believe in Christ aren't just redeemed and adopted. You are also made an heir of the eternal inheritance of life with God. That's why he goes on in verse six to say, because your sons... God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, an heir through God. Now listen, this is foundational. Don't ever say, we're we're always tempted to do this and say, that's too much theology. I don't really need that. Just give me what's practical. Don't ever make the mistake of thinking theology is not practical. Do you see the connection here? What will motivate us to act on behalf of 153 million orphans worldwide? What will motivate us to act on behalf of 245 million widows worldwide? Many of those groups who are a part of the somewhere between 20 and 40 million who are enslaved. You might be motivated by guilt. I feel bad, so I'm gonna do something about it, but that won't sustain you. You'll get back to your earthly comforts. You might be motivated by an attempt to to do good and make yourself right with God, but that's gonna, gonna flame out quick. The fuel in the tank of our care for the vulnerable is the gospel of adoption. That God, the father of the fatherless, has cared for orphans and widows and enslaved sinners like us by sending his son to die on our behalf. 
that we may be his children and call him father. Listen, I can read you statistics till I'm blue in the face. I can point you to websites and organizations all day, and we're gonna do that later. And all those things are important, but we will not be properly stirred until our hearts revel in the glorious gospel of God's adoption of us as sinners. Because then we say, why would we not? This is what God has done for me. Why would we not then go and reach out to the fatherless and reach out to the widowed and reach out to those who are, are bereft? It's at the heart of our gospel. See, it starts to make sense why James would say, pure and undefiled religion is this. To visit orphans and widows in their distress as God has visited us in Christ. So that's God's care for the orphan and widow. Now, next, let's consider God's care for the enslaved. Now, slavery is something that we tend, in the West, we tend to think of as history. We think of the, the horrific blot on our nation's history. We think of the transatlantic slave trade. During that period, an estimated 13 million slaves were trafficked. But this is not a thing of the past. And, and admittedly, the, the numbers on this are hard to pin down, but there are somewhere between 25 to 40 million slaves in our world today. That means even the low estimates are about double of what was all that was trafficked, all who were enslaved in the 18th century. What, where there is agreement is this, there are more people enslaved today than any other time in history. Now, I really do think it's worth a, a whole nother sermon or maybe five on slavery in the Bible and, and what all that means. We, we don't have time for that here, nor scope, but we have belabored in this sermon the reality that every person is made in the image of God. Therefore, to enslave another person, as the Apostle Paul says in 1 Timothy 1.9, is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel. It's sinful. God hates it. Now, you may wonder, okay, why then, we're talking about orphans and widows, that's a weighty enough topic, <laughs> why then bring in slavery? Well, because as you can imagine, those most prone to modern day enslavement and trafficking are the destitute, vulnerable orphans and widows. Often, often, it's believed 27 million are for the purposes of sexual exploitation, sex trafficking. And if you think this is an out there thing and not a, a around here thing, it, it, that's not true. I remember when we lived in Arlington a few years ago, just down the road, being shocked to find that a massage parlor I drove by nearly every day, right on Mass Ave, right next to the Whole Foods, was a part of a sex trafficking ring, including underaged girls. Not just one place, a ring in the greater Boston area. Just a, a quick internet search will uncover a number of articles about the increase of this over the last 10 years in, in our neighborhoods, in Waltham, in Lexington, in Boston, and the like. On January 5th of this year, Boston 25 News reported an increase in online, online exploitation of minors in the greater Boston area since the beginning of the pandemic. This is what, what the article called Hidden in Plain Sight. 
Audra Duty is a trafficking survivor who works with a, a Massachusetts organization that reaches out to victims. She says, I think people just don't want to see it. If it doesn't affect them and their world, they just keep driving by. But what does God say? I hear their cry. It's not an option for us as Christians to keep driving by. Now, making matters worse, this trafficking industry is fueled by the pornography industry. This is something that research has constantly shown. Federal legislation like the Trafficking Victims Protection Act has shown this, and even those involved in the production of pornography admit the reality that trafficking many times of minors is involved in this. David Platt writes that when we hear such research, we must not miss the connection. Men and women who indulge in pornography are creating the demand for and fueling the sex trafficking industry. This should break our hearts. Now consider again James 1.27, but think of the last part. James says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. It's an interesting thing to add on, right? Now, the lies of pornography are many, but one of them is this, that you can indulge in it privately while living for God publicly and it not affecting everybody else. But notice what James does. He connects compassion for the vulnerable with a pursuit of personal holiness. Do you see that? You can't pick one. In other words, you and I cannot properly care for orphans and widows if we don't also keep ourselves unstained from the world. You see that? You cannot fight for the vulnerable while perpetuating the wicked cycles that oppress them. And that's what pornography does. And friends, I know this is a hard and awkward topic, but the statistics tell us even in the church that it is a pandemic of its own. And we need to see this connection. Platt goes on, he says, people are not inferior objects to be used and abused for selfish, sexual, sensual pleasure. They're not, or they are equal image bearers of God who loves and cares for them. We may scoff at how pre-Civil War churchgoers justified slaves in their backyards, but aren't we dangerously like them when we participate in pornography and promote the sex trafficking to which it is inextricably tied in our own homes? And friend, let me just say, if, if that is you this morning and you are wrestling with that sin. You are enslaved to that sin. I pray, as one who loves you, I pray you're sensing the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And if you are, there is also guilt and shame that you are carrying because of that. And now, because maybe for the first time, you're seeing the connection with this injustice of trafficking, that guilt and shame is now multiplied on you. Not only is it a denial of God's goodness but a and a destruction to your own soul, you see that you've been perpetuating 
wicked injustice. And if you sense that right now, praise God. He is waking you up to the seriousness of your sin. There is gospel hope for you. Jesus says, come to me. Don't, don't do what we are tempted to do. Hide in your guilt and shame because you're embarrassed, because you're ashamed. No, confess your sin to him. First John 1, 9, if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from any unrighteousness. Jesus died for that sin. Then, let me encourage you to then confess it to a trusted brother or sister in Christ. Do not keep this in the dark. Sin and shame and guilt are like mold. They grow and grow and grow in dark, damp places. Expose it to the light. Bring it to the fresh air of Christian community and form a plan to fight for the, the much more superior satisfaction that you have in Jesus Christ. And by the grace and power of Christ, keep yourself unstained from the world. That, so that we may together stand up and fight for the vulnerable, fight for the orphan, fight for the widows, and fight for those who are enslaved and trafficked. And for all of us, friends, this once again, this draws us back to the work of Christ in our hearts, right? Just as God brings spiritual orphans and widows into his family, so he breaks the chains of those who are, are captive. One of my favorite hymns is by hymn writer Charles Wesley brother of John Wesley. The hymn's called And Can It Be? And he, he gives this picture of salvation. He says, long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin in nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening what ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth and followed thee. He's saying, I was a slave. And Jesus broke my chains. And what I love about the Wesleys, John and Charles Wesley, is that when they followed Jesus, it was into the streets of England. It was into the margins. It was to the orphans and the widows. It wasn't just in the comfortable places of the church building. That's where he calls us to follow him too. We follow Christ in declaring the gospel and displaying the gospel, sharing the message and showing the message of our spiritual adoption and freedom from captivity. Now, third and finally, our call to action. There is so much, I feel more so than the other sermons, there is so much here because we're not considering one topic, essentially we're considering three. And as, as we've done with each of these sermons, we've ended with very practical uh, things that you can do, pray for, learn, organizations, all of those things. And let me just say this, we realized that that's also too been like, it's like being waterboarded, right? And so what we're going to do is we're gonna have a webpage. In fact, these things are already on the discussion guide at sevenmilewaltham.com. So you don't have to write all these down. You can just listen and pray for some of the practical ways God is moving you to action. I wanna, I wanna say three things that we need to get. And the first is this. We need to get the gospel in us. You say, Kevin, you already said that. Yes, I did, and I'm gonna say it again. 
We need to meditate on the gospel. This, this is so important. If we merely shrug our shoulders and are, are relatively unaffected by what God has done for us in sending his son, if that, if that seems like no big deal to us, we will not be motivated to move outside of our comfortable Christianity to love and serve the vulnerable. Sure, we may drop some nickels into charities here and there or say a prayer here and there, but we won't be moved to real sacrifice. But if we sit in awe of what God has done for us as spiritually enslaved, spiritually orphaned, spiritually widowed people, we will willingly and joyfully walk in true religion. So ask yourself, when was the last time you sat and thought, Christ left the glories of heaven for me? Christ died for me. He took my sin upon himself. He welcomed me into his family. Even when I was lost in my sin and an enemy of him, he didn't just save me. He called me brother. He called me sister. I now have direct access to Father God, the King of the universe. Are you kidding me? How can I not go and serve the vulnerable? When was the last time you sat and prayerfully meditated on the gospel like that? That is foundational. The most compassionate Christians are those who are most floored by the glories of Christ in the gospel. Those who are most amazed at the mercy God shows them. And then they're moved to extend mercy to the vulnerable. Also, friends, when we do this, it'll cultivate us in us a humility that we need to properly serve the vulnerable. This will keep us from acting as if we have all the answers. We have all the provision. Instead, it'll move us in love and empathy to meet needs and consider ways to get involved. In fact, you're, you're gonna find as you move into these margins that you are often the one who's ministered to. It, that makes perfect sense when we hear Jesus say, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So get the gospel in you. Number two, get informed. Learn about the needs. I'm just gonna shout out, shout out some organizations. They're not on the screen, but they're on the website. The Christian Alliance for Orphans. They exist to inspire and equip Christians to live out effectively the Bible's call to care for orphans and vulnerable children. It's not just one organization, it's an overarching organization with hundreds connected. Think about the Massachusetts Department of Children and Families to consider foster care and adoption. Visit the website, call and learn more about needs in your very own backyard. As we think of the enslaved, the International Justice Mission, they partner with local authorities in 21 programs and offices in 14 countries to fight trafficking and slavery worldwide, violence against women and children, and police abuse of power. Or Amira House Boston is a local organization, faith-based. They exist to provide a refuge to those seeking to break free from exploitation and heal in community on their journey toward lasting hope. They say, we help women who have survived the sex trade reach their own goals and be the heroes of their stories. All of these things have ways you can practically get involved. And then lastly, get the gospel in you, get informed and get to work. Here's some practical questions we should be asking. How can I serve the vulnerable closest to me? 
We often look online, we, look, we hear these numbers, and we get so overwhelmed by what's out there. We just need to say, God has called me to this place. This is my neighborhood, this is my city. What is around me that I can do? And remember that, that Old Testament view of widow is widened. It's not just those who have lost their husband. It's those who are bereft for any reason. Prayerfully consider what are the needs like this in my family, in my church, in my neighborhood? How can I help? If it's a neighbor, how could your gospel community come together prayerfully and display and declare the gospel to them? And here's another question. I really mean this as your pastor and one who loves this church, all of us should ask this question prayerfully. Is God calling you to adopt or foster? We tend to think that's for other people. I'll give money. Maybe, not all of us are called to this. But let's start the other way. Let's start with the hardest thing, ask if God's calling us to do that, and then eliminate. Is God calling you to this? Talk to those in our church who have participated in foster care or adoption and prayerfully consider what it means. And let me just say, those of you who have adopted and fostered and and cared for those in need, we think of heroes of the faith as those who have preached great sermons, written great books, and traveled around to thousands. According to the gospel, you are heroes of the faith. Praise God for you. Praise God for the sacrifices you've made to display the gospel of adoption and put it into practice. Talk to those folks. In fact, raise your hand if you've been involved in that. Okay? You can talk to them. You see them around you. Just ask, how can I use my time, talents, and resources to support foster and adoptive families and organizations? Friends, we can go on and on, but church, God is the father of the fatherless. True Christian living involves imitating his care and concern for the vulnerable around us. And it's out of the overflow of what he's done for us. So the question is not, is God calling me to serve the vulnerable? That's not the question. The question is, how is God calling me to serve? And so let's commit by his grace to walk in obedience to this command.